My name is Jason from the Misplay Podcast, and you're listening to Farming Eternal, the number one eternal podcast. Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Padumaro, Ruben, or Barefoot Farmer, and Ben, also known as Ben Gracer, who's back on the data mining team. It's episode 28. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. This week, we're going to talk about how our draft week went, some announcements, listener of the week, card of the week, seven win run breakdown. Our main topics are going. Our main topic is going to be uh, something that has been oft requested recently, and that's uh, talking about the metrics and their limitations. Finally, we'll go over the next phase in our our, our five part series on quadrant theory. This time with uh, the winning phase. And then we'll review another uh, four or five color draft by Ben. To begin with, Ben, how was your draft week? Uh, the draft week has been pretty awesome. Uh, I've had a few sevens, a good stream participation. Uh, the Discord has been amazing for talking about the various decisions that have been made. And it seems like a lot of people are picking up uh, on this new format, have a lot of uh, uh, picks to discuss and um help building decks and and that sort of thing. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, it's true. I will talk about this a little bit more in the the seven win run breakdown, but it's it's pretty interesting to see just how varied playable decks are in this format. So my draft week was a little less spectacular. After my excellent week last week, I did a draft. It wasn't a great, didn't turn into a great deck. And I've only played one game of it. I'm one and O, and I've been holding on to that one and O status for about five days now. Well, but trying, trying is the first step to failing. So, but uh, on the positive note, <laughs> we are recording an episode, and I have no episodes in the backlog that need to be edited. That's amazing. So, That's very well done. So, hopefully. Uh, I'll be able to edit this episode and then be able to play some drafts uh, pretty soon. Okay, so then announcements. We have two new patrons joined this week, so we're up to four patrons. So I'd like to thank Raven Dragon and Sunblaze, as well as our two new patrons, srich0215 and Yistout. Uh, thank you so much for joining the Patreon. We really appreciate it. Um, every little bit helps. Anyone else who would like to sort of help support the show and everything we do, uh, you can check that out at patreon.com slash farming eternal. Um, we have a few different rewards and levels and kind of some fun things. And also Ben and I are behind the scenes talking about other cool goals and rewards we can have. We still haven't, uh, we haven't come up with a new goal yet after we smashed our original five dollar <laughs> <laughs> our $5 goal to get Ben to change his screen or his stream title. And then also, um, any of you who have joined the Discord probably knows Ben went a little crazy this week and created a whole bunch of channels and has been really experimenting with things on the Discord about what's working and not working. And uh, Eris Elite actually had wanted to do like a duplicate draft kind of thing. Um, 
had mentioned it really early on in the Patreon or in the Discord, and Ben kind of did a duplicate draft with uh, two or three other people participating where they went through a draft and all picked what cards they would take, and then they all made decks from it and kind of had a discussion about uh, how their picks led them to very, very different decks in the end. So I I followed that. I was not able to participate, but kind of followed the discussion in the final deck list, and that was pretty interesting. There's a lot of experimenting. There's a lot of talking still on the Discord. So that's really a great place to be. And yeah, and if you want to then take the next step and join the Patreon, we would really appreciate it. I think that the participation in the Discord has been off the charts. We, we had a lot of people uh, helping with uh, draft pick selections, with uh, deck building, with this duplicate draft. Uh, there just has been so much participation. It's been very, very cool. All right. And then our listener of the week this week is Jen, or Jed the Hamrid. Uh, he's been such an active member in um, on the Discord and sending in lists that I just assumed that he had been a listener of the week before, but he has not. So we wanted to give them a shout out uh, for participating so much in the show and then just being a really positive force in the community and just very positive on the discord. Um, so that's really awesome. So thank you, Judd. Thanks. Okay. Card of the week. What's your card this week, Ben? Well, I'm going to call out uh, the card horn of plenty. Uh, I remember back to when set five started and I looked at horn of plenty and I said, six. this card set six. set six. Yeah. Sorry. When set six started, I looked at this card and I said, they just printed Xenonobelisk at common. Uh, and that's got to be crazy. And I drafted it a bunch, and I probably drafted way too many of them, and maybe not enough creatures. And it ended up being well above average in the format, but it wasn't like best card in the in the format or anything. Uh, I think with this new rotation, it is it has a shot to be Xenonobelisk again because it's so splashable, because there's so many combos with it, and because you can play those combos thanks to the fixing. Uh, One of the things we talked about last week is a lot of the established strategies got better because you could play more cards in them, Mm -hmm. um, because you could play more colors, like the scout strategy or the warp strategy. You can just play more of those cards. The make all your creatures bigger strategy uh, or the make tokens strategy with blood nurse or ooze or whatever uh, got a lot better as well. And I, I think this card is one of the most important individual cards you can see uh, in uh, set 6.5. And I'm taking it over almost anything. Um, whereas in uh, set 6.0, I, I took behemoth, I took retribution, I took, uh, a handful of other commons over it, and I think that that was probably right then. Uh, I think now it, it's... I, I, we'll wait to see the results, but I think that card is is definitely one of the most important ones in the format. Mm-hmm. So you think uh, pack one, pick one? You would take Horn of Plenty over a Corrupted Behemoth? I think right now I would, because it it matters a little bit more for the deck the decks that I'm drafting than the Corrupted Behemoth does. The Behemoth does a good job of stabilizing, but there's a 
there's a lot of creatures that stabilize and there's only one creature that turns blood nurse into a bomb instead of a, a normal card or turns scavenging ooze into just a very crazy card or, or lets you just dominate the end game uh, like the horn does. You, you make yeah. all your guys bigger and there's nothing they can do. Well, because I've been really surprised about how high high up you've bec- you've gone up or how high you've gone up on Blood Nurse. Because that used to be a card in set six that you were way lower than Ruben or I was. I was kind of in the middle of you two. But you were just like, why would anyone ever play this card? And <laughs> That's true. I think that's true. It required and now a- I see you in Discord and you're always like always suggesting Blood Nurse and I've been really surprised to see that. Yeah, I think I think I don't think I was wrong before because um the what I view Blood Nurse is is like a a speculation on having enough horns. Uh it, it's a reward for having enough horns in my mind. Uh in in the old format you you were just super short on playable, so you couldn't afford to speculate much at all uh, on anything, especially in the set six packs, which are the packs that had the good cards in them. Now, like, the, you're going to be cutting five to ten cards out of your deck uh, at the end of the draft. So if Blood Nurse is good in your deck, it's going to be real good. Uh, whereas if it's bad, you just cut them. And I, I cut four Blood Nurses out of one of my decks in, in one draft just because I didn't get any horns. And I think that's a perfectly correct decision. I think the blood nurses go late and you should pick them up with that speculation mindset. And, you know, if you get the combo put together, that it's very difficult to stop. There's a lot less flyers, I think, in the set. There's a, a lot more mid-range grindiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the more you're in that sort of a situation and... The, the less removal there is and there's less removal in the set, the, the, the better the Blood Nurse combos are going to get. Even though we lost Refresh, I didn't think Refresh plus Blood Nurse was a very good combo. I only thought, and I still pretty much only think, that, that you want it to be Horn. Because mm-hmm. Horn, Horn gives you more twists and makes the bats bigger. Yeah, I think that I, the bats on their own are not very good. So. Yeah, that's the important part is the bats get bigger. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a it's an exponential effect, and I and I like that. Like with two horns, you get nine power of flying. With zero horns, you get one power of flying, and that's that's it's a huge difference. So it's it's just a good card. Horn is just good, and then it enables you to speculate on some other cards that are conditionally good, uh, and you can afford to play all of the conditionally good cards when you're playing all of the colors, if you can meet the conditions. Does that make sense? It does. I like, I'm not, I would say, I would say a card like Blood Nurse is still not like tip top commons. Uh, I, I would take any removal spell over it. I wouldn't take any good creature, but I'm, I'm looking to, to maybe fit it in. What about you, Patrick? What, what's your card of the week? Okay, well, my card my card of the week is Averax Familiar. You actually chose this one for me, but <laughs> but I do th- I I think this is maybe the card, uh, the card in the set that, or I guess it's not in the set. It's probably the card in the format that we have the biggest delta on. I feel like <laughs> between our yeah. opinions, 
it's 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 pretty good. What what, what would you say are the strengths? What, what what's the best reason to play Avrax Familiar? I think the the two strengths of Avrax Familiar are one, well, the three main things. It's a flying creature. It has warp. And it ramps you into five drops, which are very powerful in this format. Yeah, Corrupted Behemoth, Horn of Plenty. Uh, There's like Steel Legion. There's a ton of of good ones. Do you think the flying body is, uh, is it good enough? Because like we talk about uh, Cloud Snake Hatchling and uh, the green... One who gives guard. armor, soaring guard, yeah. And do you view those as like real creatures? Do you view the 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 one two flyer as as like a real threat? In the um, well, two things is one is um, as a one two flyer, it blocks people who would put a cloud snake hatchling and a soaring guard in their deck. Sure, sure. Um, also, it's in time, which, as we just mentioned, has access to Horn of Plenty. Which That's true. A 2-3 is a much more... Do you know what I mean? The yeah. plus one plus one is so much more effective when it's on flying creatures. I agree with that. The, um, but what about... Um, how would you evaluate it compared to, say, Archive Curator... Or uh, like Valkyrie Militant, or or some other like slightly bigger flyer that doesn't have the, the plus one power. Do you think it's better than those cards? The Curator is the Silence one, right? The Archive Curator is one four Silence for four in time. Like Valkyrie Militant is the two two flyer for four in Justice that gives you armor if you get more armor. Mm-hmm. Like just. It, would you play a, a two power flyer over this if you had uh, both of them, or do no, you value I think the, the where I, where I would put this is I think archive curator is probably a better card, um, but I would play the familiar over a Valkyrie militant any day of the week. I think I think the the ramp and the warp it's. Just, are just so good. Like being able to sort of like go up plus one power and draw a card. I mean, obviously this is like best case scenario, but I don't know. I just, the card always just feels like it does something for me. And I mean, it's like opponents always seem to prioritize killing it, which is also like not the worst thing, you know, like I'd rather have them kill that than like a good card. Sure. So it's not a good card, then. <laughs> no, yeah, that's fine. No, it's so, not. I mean, but it, it's think, like not a. It's a good card, but it's not. It's not like the card that wins you the game. Sure. You know, it's, it's kind enable. of like um, uh, what's the one one, the Lana War Elf Initiative um, the Sands. Right, like Initiative the Sands. Right, no one is like this is my game winning card. Yeah. It's just. It's subtly powerful, and I think the Averex Familiar has a lot of that, too. And it, like, if you just think of it as a a, a three-power, one-two flyer, you're like, oh, this is not a great card. It's obviously three times the cost of a Cloud Snake Hatchling, um, and 
you know, one power more than uh, Sorengard. But I think the fact that it has warp gives you plus one max power is way better than, say, the plus two armor for Sorengard. Sure, so I, I try to fit at least one copy in all of my, any deck that can play it. Sure. I think it is uh, overstated, probably. T- typically, warp costs uh, two extra power. So if you took two power off it, it's a one-two flare that adds a power for one. So that you compare that to Cloud Snake Hatchling, and it's a pretty good deal. You compare that to uh, Initiative of the Sands, and that's a pretty good deal, because you get flying in an extra point of toughness. So uh, it's also cheap enough that you can try and squeeze it in as part mm-hmm. of a normal turn. It's not so cheap that it's kind of free to play it, like a Blink Wolf. Uh, and a lot of our what's the plays have had like an Avrax familiar on top because it does tend to kind of uh, give you the choice of, of value over board development. Um, but I do think like stats wise, it's it's not bad, and the power ramping is quite good, uh, especially in this in a twist format. There's a lot you can do with extra power, so I, I do think it's a good card. I, I'm just not quite as high on it as you, and I, I can see why you would be higher than, than where I am, so. And the card is performing, I think, in the sheet, so it's good. Set six has been a progression of me just going higher and higher on warp cards, and I think this is this is just another example of that, where it's just so easy to under, undervalue it. It's like, you know what, like, they, they made warp cards cost, you know, plus two power for a reason in development. Yeah. And the fact that this this is sort of a better rate than the average, I think, speaks to the, the power of this card. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good. All right. Shall we move to the seven win run breakdown? Sure. Let's do it. All right, so we have 38 lists from 27 listeners in five days. So we're doing pretty good. Yeah, so we're doing pretty good. Uh, we have uh, a few new a few new submit submitters. We have Brewers, FS Forward Sound, Mercio Blue, Ninja Can, and XI550, as well as a bunch of veteran submitters: Abed Nago, B Gracier. Captain Cookies and Cream, uh, Celtic Seven Guardian, Darth Herman Two with Three, Dubes, Gato Sujo, Jedi EJ, Joey Andy Juve, John Holio, John P, Jose Carlos Twenty One Twenty One, Mancio Nineteen Eighty Two, Meagles Out in a Limb, and Parmalee. Oh, that's not the end. And Parmalee, <laughs> sorry. There's a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Parmalee, Raven Dragon, Rofer. Soapy Elo, Sunblaze, Terran Flame, and Yam Yam. So thank you, everyone, for sending in a list. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, we collect seven win runs from all of our listeners, and we put them in a spreadsheet for us to evaluate and spread that information out to you. You can find a link to both of our spreadsheets on our website, which is a little hard. AzureWebsites.net. Yeah. Eternal what farmingeternal.azurewebsites.net or you could look in the show notes and see it there. So and then using those 
deck lists, you get to hear information like this. So this week, Ben kind of wanted to talk about the top commons of the format. Yeah, we have to be a little careful about how we use the data uh, that we're getting from our listeners uh, very early in the format because the sample sizes are just not super large. If you looked at 6.0, it did shift quite a bit between the first few weeks and the end of the format. But I think it is important to look at, uh, to just give kind of a sneak peek at the commons here. Uh, so the I think the most important things to point out is in the top uh, 25 or so cards, all 10 strangers are present uh, on our background rate metric. We'll talk a little bit about the what the metrics mean in, the, in our main topic for today. But on our background rate metric, all 10 strangers are in the top 24 cards, which is quite important, I would say. And uh, five of the banners as well. Not all 10 banners, but five of them are up there. Uh, the top uh, non-fixing card is Corrupted Behemoth, which if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you've heard us talk about Corrupted Behemoth. Mm -hmm. uh, Retribution, though, is, is quite a bit lower than uh, Corrupted Behemoth. Like, Behemoth is the... In the, on the order of the fifth best common, and Retribution is like the, the 20th. Uh, this surprised me quite a bit because from looking at the changes from set six to set 6.5, if anything, removal got better, right? Because there's basically no removal in the curated packs. So Retribution is a very good removal spell in, in set six, but it, it kind of fell down a little bit which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Maybe it's just sample size. Maybe there's some reason for it that I'm uh, just not understanding yet. But that's definitely a like change for sure. It, Corrupted Behemoth and Retribution were like neck and neck for the whole format uh, in 6.0. But Corrupted Behemoth is leading by a significant amount right now. Uh, the other creatures that are making it up into the, the high ranks of the commons are Crooked Alley Guide, Toroid Test Pilot, Lethrite Intimidator, which is a new card from the Curated Pack that uh, is a 2-4 four for 4 in Shadow mm -hmm. uh, that pledges, and when you uh, empower, it gives makes all of your guys bigger on attack. There's also Trailmaker and Devotee of the Sands uh, at, to round out the Creature Suite in the top. And like Devotee is still making it up into the top here despite there being uh, 10 strangers in the top 25 cards. So that says something about the power level of Devotee of the Sands, but we don't see Blurry Chaser. We don't see Svetch's Faithful, uh, the Pal Steadfast Paladin. Uh, a lot of the other two drops uh, fell off quite a bit with the introduction of the strangers. Yeah. Uh, in the spells department, there's Retribution, which I previously mentioned, Dark Return, uh, Barrel Through, and that's it. Um, that's that's all the cards that are in the top 25, just because so many of them are these fixing cards. Uh, now, Dark Return is very interesting, I think. We've talked about that a little bit in the past. But that's a card that I often see in the curated packs and take fixing over it. And I'm really not sure whether I'm doing that correctly or not, because Dark Return is a very powerful card. Uh, what do you think, Patrick? Would you take uh, Dark Return over fixing? Let's say your plan is take bomb 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 very powerful card flyer flyer removal spell and then you're filling in the fixing in packs two and three do you take dark return to play those cards those very good creatures that you're picking again or do you 
take fixing to allow you to play the cards in the first place? I think you take fixing. Uh, yeah, one of my dirty little secrets is I think that Dark Return never performs for me as well as it's supposed to. So mm -hmm. I I actually don't necessarily view Dark Return as like the bomb common That's... that a lot of, that a lot of people view it as because it, it just it, I mean it is a great card and like when your opponent plays a Dark Return and gets back their best creature and gives it plus one plus one it feels really bad but you're not taking into account all the times when they don't have anything good. <laughs> Right. Do you know what I mean? Like no, completely. And, yeah. And with your strategy that you you've been sort of advocating for, you have enough bombs that you don't need to like rely on dark return to get back your one bomb so that you have a chance to win the game. Sure. Like, I think its utility goes down a little bit. And it's much better for you to be able to play your bombs than to be able to potentially. <laughs> you, you're not you're not getting an unplayable bomb out of your graveyard, right? With right. a dark return, you know, you need to be able to play your cards. So, would you say what would you say about dark return in developing? Would you say that it's like average, good, or or bad in the, I, well, in I the think first few it's turns? It's clearly bad in most cases in developing there are yeah. some corner cases like like if your if your hand is so bad that you have no other development plays like you can lose your stranger dark return it and then have a turn three play but that's right. not like a great use of dark return and that relies on a few things like that they that you actually kill off your two two and they don't have, you know, they don't just take it or they don't have a 1-3 that, you know what I mean? There's just like a lot of situations where the dark return could be good, but ends up being useless because it doesn't, you know, things don't work out for having a unit in your graveyard in development. Right. And it, it kind of, you're banking, when you take that over a above replacement level card, you're banking on getting an above replacement level card back when you're actually playing the games. And a lot of times in the early game or even in the mid game, your options for dark returning are very limited. It doesn't really like press your advantage much either. Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you're ahead and you go, you know, creature, creature removal spell, like dark return is doing about as much work for you there as lightning strike would in that you don't have any guy to get back and you just kind of have to wait for them to kill your guy and then get your guy back and play it. And it, it's a little slow. So that's, those reasons are some of the reasons I haven't taken it as highly, but it is, it's one of like less than 10 cards that are in the, in the top here that are not fixing. So I, I'm, I'm thinking about this card. If you have, uh, opinions on Dark Return and whether it's good or bad or whether you should take it over fixing or over uh, certain cards, you should definitely make that known in the Discord. I think that would be a great place to have a discussion about this. Yeah, because what's, what's partially interesting to me is because I feel like I can tell a, a story about why 
people overvalue Dark Return, which yeah. means, and it's not a bad card, so it ends up showing up in a lot of lists. But this has been our fourth format, and that we've had lists in every format that has had Dark Return. Dark Return has been one of the better cards, so yeah. it's 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 been pretty consistent. So I don't know if what way that that influences um you know my story of why people how people overvalue dark return and it shows up so it shows up a little too much but yeah it's just interesting to note that and we'll get into this in a little bit when we sort of talk about the the limitations of our metrics and stuff like that but i do think you know this is a, a good example of sometimes there are cards that there can be other reasons besides for just raw strength that they're sure. in the list. For sure. I'd also like to talk for just a little bit about, about a couple other cards. So mm-hmm. Seek, in 6.0, Seek Power was a straight 1.0 on background rate. So it was basically showed up as much as any other random common. In set 6.5, it's at two and a half times the background rate, which is just crazily higher. And and this is a card that can go in any deck, so this is a extremely high rate for a, a, a neutral card. Um, so that's pretty impressive, I would say, especially compared to the last format. Uh, mm-hmm. And then we also have Bannerman weighing it at around two and a half times background rate. All the cards we mentioned before were 2.75 or higher. Bannerman's around two and a half, so it's doing pretty well. And it's another true neutral card, could in theory go in any deck. So we're seeing extremely high volumes of people uh, drafting Seek Power and Bannerman. That's for sure. What'll be interesting, and I hadn't really thought about this until you mentioned it right now, is Seek Power was in six, right? Yes. Yeah, and like I say, flat one point. It was basically background rate. But I think at the rates. beginning of the format, it was way higher actually, and it sl- slowly lowered as the weeks went on. And the same is true of Bannerman in set five. Where set five, the first couple weeks that we did it, Bannerman was way up there, and then as the format sort of progressed, it sort of. I don't know. If it, off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. If it went down to its like natural rate or if the sort of format changed a little bit as, you know, people sort of figured out their plan and and Bannerman became less of a part of that. I think set five is a good thing to compare this to this set just in general, because it seems very likely that it's a three ish color format uh, and Set five was also a three-ish color format. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think there was maybe a little bit more fixing. Like there was a lot of fixing available in set five. There was a lot. And in all four packs, in in uh, set 6.5, there's a lot of fixing available, but it's all in one pack. Right. So that's a little, little different. And then that affects how highly you take things like uh, Bannerman, and seek power, which are in the curated packs. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then we'll just give a quick rundown of the factions that are doing the best. Time is about in sixty percent of the decks. And what's interesting to note is 
when last format, when we were in a solidly two-color format, we kept talking about how, on average, you would expect to see every color 40% of the time. But now that there's a lot more three-color decks, four-color decks, five-color decks, and a lot more splashing, I think there's really no set benchmark for what you should, on average, expect of a color. Because like in a three-color format, like set point, set five, you really expected to see every faction at 60% because there's um, because it would be in more decks because each deck had three colors. So, you know, so you can kind of look at these numbers and think to yourself, how many, fa <laughs> how many factions do you think this format is? Is it closer to two? Is it closer to three? Is it closer to four? You know, sort of who knows, but right now, Time is number one. It's about 60%. Uh, Primal and Shadow are about 40% of decks. And Fire and Justice are in 50% uh, of decks. So it goes Time, Fire, Justice, and then Primal Shadow. How does the splashing factor into that as well? Are, are people doing a lot of splashing in this format? Because that's for main colors, right? Yes, that's for main colors. And splashing is way, way higher than the last format. Uh, ben probably has the number, what it was, but it was about... Around 15% uh, yeah. was for any splash at all <laughs> right? in in set 6. But what about set 6.5? In set 6.5, right now we have 55% uh, of decks have a splash in them. And this, this it includes our three-color decks, of which we have a lot. And so three-color decks with a splash... So this doesn't just mean like 55% of decks have three colors. No, right. you could either be a two-color deck with a splash for a third color, a three-color deck with a fourth-color splash, or something along those lines. Um, or I guess you could also technically be a two-color deck with two splashes. We see a lot of that as well. Yeah. Like there's a lot of splashing going on here, and there's a lot of support for it in the format. Mm -hmm. So if, if if you're not splashing, I I think you're you're losing some value. Uh, so definitely keep an eye out for high power splashable cards. You can definitely play them. Yeah, and then to continue along that theme of just how many playable uh, factions and color combinations there are, our top performing two color combination right now is Combray with. Uh, 15 of our lists, so about 20% of our lists are Combray, um, with or without a splash. But then the next one is Genev, the Fire Time Primal faction, and that's uh, nine of the nine of our decks are Genev. And then that's, we go back. That's crazy. A, a three-color deck is the number two, <laughs> the number two faction combination. Yes, that's awesome. And then we go back to two factions with number three being Stone Scar. And those are those three are actually well above. They're double the next contender of uh, lists that we have. And every one, every every other combination actually uh, already has a list. Unlike the last format where we were like waiting weeks for our first Falm list. You know, all the two color, all the three colors, we've already received lists for every single two color and every single three color faction. So this is a lot different than any of the other sets that we played where it seems like at least just about everything has a chance to win. So that is our seven win breakdown for this week.
Uh, for those of you who've listened to the show for a long time, you'll know that we'll get more and more in depth with that and talk about different aspects of the spreadsheet, especially as we get more lists in. But that's just sort of our high level start of the format breakdown for this week. So shall we move into our main topic? Sounds good. Let's talk about metrics and their limitations. Yeah. So as we are, you know, going to talk more and more about the spreadsheet and our metrics in the upcoming podcast, we thought we would start um, start the, this format with a quick talk about limitations of metrics. That was kind of the first big discussion we had in our Discord when we opened it up. Is some people, and we've had this in the past too, where some people wonder what information can get gleaned from just the seven win breakdowns. And so we have a few opinions about that that we'd kind of like to share. So first, would you like to start with what you consider the limitations of the metrics are, Ben? Sure, sure. I, I think the, the most important one is probably sample size. And that's the, the key reason why we aren't going into more depth now. We just don't really have enough lists to draw the, the conclusions we would like to draw. At the end of the 6.0 format, we had 575 lists. So we could say with confidence that we had enough uh, information to draw conclusions. Cur currently, we have something like uh, 80 lists. And we have uh, some faction combinations that have around 10 lists. That's about average. and. Uh, there's just too much variation uh, in those 10 lists to be able to say like with confidence that a certain card uh, is good enough or not. So that's why we didn't do this last week. We're not going super in depth this week. We're probably gonna be several weeks away from anything like rares uh, or uncommons just because those cards just don't show up as much. You have, you have to wait until you have enough of a sample size to uh, draw conclusions, and then you can draw some valid ones. Uh, is your your sample size is that you'd like to see is more like a hundred, Patrick? I think how you think about it is, as you as you get more decks in, you're sort of you're like honing in on the correct answer. Right. And so, if we had if we had all the data, then we'd know what the exact answer was. And the more data we get, the more closer we're going to get to the the actual answer. At the beginning of the format, I remember entering the first decks in and uh, like Corrupted Behemoth was a six <laughs> and it's a, like a three now or two, two and a half. Uh, and that's just in one week, it went from being a six to a three. And, and that's just shows you the, the impact of increasing the sample size. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, when we, when we add another week's worth of data and another week's worth of data, We'll just get closer and closer to the to the true answers, and as more people contribute, that's another thing. Like if they were all my lists or all Patrick's lists, they would be what's working for Patrick or me, but not necessarily what's working for people in general. So it's really impressive that every week we have you know twenty to forty submitters, and all of those people are contributing to make our sample size greater and our diversity of strategies theories um way to make things work it, it all just goes up and up uh as we get more people participating mm -hmm. this is another area that i think people have uh, a criticism about the data thinking that it could be biased by 
who are submitting the lists. And that's obviously true. Like data can be biased by by like where you're gathering your data from. But for sure. But we we're getting lists, you know, Ben, you this week you kind of did a little graphic of showing like everyone in the top 100 of the last two months who have submitted lists in. And there are a lot of people in the top 100 that are submitting lists to us. And those people, I think, are not getting all of their draft knowledge through us. These are like good top-level drafters who have been good probably for a long time (laughs) who are just like, you know, and we're who are thankfully submitting their list to us so we can, you know, glean some information from them. And these are people who will have a, a, a diversity of tactics. You know, I mean, they're not just like listening to us and being like, oh, this is the only way to draft. I think the fact that it's not like we're just getting bronze level players or diamond level players, and we welcome those drafts too. It's, I think we are the the breadth of of people that we're getting lists from i think really bolsters how effective our data can be for sure yeah i i agree with that we we have like 20% of the top 100 are submitting lists which is just that's insane uh so it it really points to having a, a relatively high data quality there or high high level play let's say so the another thing that you kind of need to consider with sample size is what cards may not have helped you win the games that you played. Um, you're actually not very likely to see any particular card in your deck, even in seven games, uh, even in the seven games you, you win to submit a list. So if you play uh, 10 turn games, which is moderately long, uh, and you have one of any specific card, you are uh, 16%, I think, to not have seen a card at all. And, and we see people submit lists all the time where they say, well, I had a pristine light, but I never drew it. Or I had a Siphon Vitality and I never drew the card. And that, that just happens all the time. Uh, so that these people went seven with a particular card in their list, for one list, it doesn't matter too much. You need to have a lot of lists and play a lot of games. Uh, and then as that game volume grows and the sample size grows there, it becomes more and more likely that the cards those people are tending to play actually helped contribute to actual wins that they they achieved. Um, so just you can't like overemphasize the impact of any one card because you just might never draw it. So we, we also only collect um, seven win deck lists. We don't collect your six win deck lists or your zero win deck lists. If we had every uh, deck that we ever played, we could make better conclusions because there are certainly, while, while there's correlations of cards with seven win lists, there's probably also correlations of cards with zero win lists. We could do more advanced analysis there, but that's just a like technical limitation that we have. <laughs> we, technical and time limitation. Time, yeah. It, it takes a long time to enter the decks. It takes a long time to... Uh, we, we were running out of space 
an Excel. It, Excel was exceeding the maximum file size limitations with our 600 lists from uh, set six. So if we collected all the lists, we'd probably have like 3,000, which would just be, we, we'd need some other solution. Yeah. So, yeah. But I, <laughs> what I don't want someone to take from that is that it makes what we are collecting worthless. I think that's the conclusion that some people take. They're like, oh, but what about six winless? Or what about five winless? Those are good decks, and you're not taking in, into account any of those decks. I think the more extreme the result, more likely it is that the cards in the list contributed to that result. Mm -hmm. Like, if you look at a at two or three win, the average number of wins in a draft is two and a half. So if you looked at two and three win deck lists, I'm not sure what kind of conclusion you'd be able to draw no matter what the data was, because those people are performing at the actual average. You need to see the extreme win counts uh, to, like, it emphasizes the quality of the decks that are being submitted and this is the likelihood that uh, it was a fluke that that uh, the list made it in while, while some other list did not. I've had great lists not go seven, and I didn't submit those lists. That doesn't mean they weren't good lists. doesn't mean I didn't get, uh, didn't lose for one reason or another. But as I play better, as I draft better lists, I'll have more lists to submit, and my perspective on what is good or bad will have more weight in the overall sheet. If I play like uh, not very well <laughs> and draft not very well, I will not have much influence on the sheet. So I think it is good that we limit it to sevens. I think it is uh, valid and it's just a way to try and reduce the sample size in a way that just innately makes sense. We, we don't differentiate between 7-0, 7-1, 7-2. Maybe we should, but we don't. Uh, and I think it's a very reasonable cutoff to have, to, to say these decks were good. They did as much winning as the game allowed them to do. Uh, and then we try and correlate all those numbers and say, well, what's the common factor between these various successful lists? Uh, right. And the extent to which we do that well will be the extent to which we can help uh, our listeners do the same thing. And I think this speaks to what you can get from these numbers and what claims we're making about our numbers. And I think the main claim we're making is that these are the cards that help decks get to seven wins. And yeah, yeah. It is a correlative analysis. It's yes. not. It's not showing uh, causation, but you. I don't know that you can show causation. So correlation is as good as we can get. Yes. And most of the time, there's some relationship between correlation and cause, and you know that's that's as good as we can do. So that's fine. I also like as the deck enterer, I can tell you that whatever we say on the podcast, people are going to play the cards that they want to play and they're going to submit those lists to us. So we see all sorts of lists that do all sorts of crazy things that I would never advocate anyone to do. 
but people are still going to do them and they're going to have success. Uh, and the extent to which they have that success and it's replicatable uh, is the extent to which that will show up in the in the list as a successful strategy. And, you know, people can maybe take that and run with it. And I yeah. think that that's great. Like there, there's, <laughs> I would say, I would not draft more than 50% of the list that gets submitted. That, that That's just not a thing. And I think Patrick is in, probably in the same boat there. We would, mm -hmm. a lot of the list that gets submitted, there's no way either one of us would, would draft it. We could draft the format for months and never draft uh, those decks. So I think that that's, that's really awesome. It shows diverse perspectives and... And if enough yeah. other people are drafting those, they'll rise up in the metrics. Exactly. And show that it's a viable strategy for more than just the one or two people who originally submitted those kind of lists. Right. I, th I think it, pretty much anything can high roll once uh, and get to seven once. But if it's consistent, repeatable, uh, if it performs well, then it's going to show up in the list, especially if if you play it a lot because you think it's good. And we're, we'll talk about it. We talk about this stuff all the time. Uh, and there's there's as many different draft strategies as there are people that play. And so. so what do you say to people that, like, the metrics only show what cards people like, not what cards are actually good? Uh, so I think let's, uh, if we had a theoretical card that, we, we have examples of this, though. So what one of the things that affects um the metrics on specific cards is whether they are playable and constructed. It, you see ranked cards performing differently in the sheet than non-ranked cards. And I think this is kind of proof that cards that do well do not suffer from this. Because in general, cards that do well in ranked do less well in draft than you would expect, D do less well in the metrics. Because... I mean, there's many reasons that this could be, but I believe uh, we talked about one of these, the Eclipse Dragon versus Pouncing Drake example in a previous episode, where Pouncing Drake is basically a worse version of Eclipse Dragon, and Eclipse Dragon has a lower value in the metric. So I, I think there's two things that cause this. One, people will take a card they like and tunnel vision on that card, and not actually draft properly going to the open lane or whatnot. And they'll train wreck. And those cards that they drafted that they like will be removed from the pool and not make it to seven win lists. Uh, another factor is just that people will rare draft those cards and, and they'll go down in the list. But I think another factor that uh, that is significant is the more obviously powerful a card is, the more the average person will take it. Uh, so like the average person looks at Eclipse Dragon and says that is a crazy card, they will take that card. But the average player will not be able to utilize the power of that card to convert the power of that card into wins. Um, and they'll make enough other bad decisions that it, it won't make it into uh, the seven list. But I, I think... Like undervalued cards by the general population are in in general overrepresented in the list because 
that are undervalued. And, and the people who see the value in those cards will draft them. Those people will have more success than they should and have more sevens than they should uh, based on their evaluations. So that, that's something that I think that, that kind of counteracts the idea of the favorite cards or whatever. Like I can draft, I think Sauropod Crasher is a good card, fine. I draft a lot of Sauropod Crashers. If it doesn't help me win, it, it's not going to make it into the sheet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like I'll have a higher seven win percentage than the average person, but unless it can actively assist me in winning games, I'll have less seven win lists than I would otherwise. And when you multiply that by the hundred people that play, I think the people who don't have biases that are unsupported by evidence will overwhelm the people who do have those biases. If, if you have a belief that doesn't correlate with reality, you'll have a lower win rate than the people who don't have that belief. Mm -hmm. And lower win rate is the best way to not have a seven win run. Yes. Uh, so the, the people who don't have the unhelpful biases are going to be, if anything, overrepresented in the sheet. Uh, and that should cancel out any of this favorite card behavior. So Ben, in the spreadsheet, we evaluate the cards through different metrics. And I thought we could take a minute to sort of discuss the different ways we evaluate cards in the spreadsheet. Sure, so the, the main metric that we use in uh, comparing cards generally is the background rate of the cards that are the performance above background. Or if you're a baseball player, it's wins above replacement. So what, what we do with uh, this metric is we try and cancel out as many factors as we can that would cause one card to be better than another card for reasons other than that the card is better. Um, so we, for example, uh, there's more commons in the, in the uh, curated packs than in set six. So you see any one common less often. So if you were to compare just the number of a particular common from the curated packs and set six, the set six cards would kind of have an unfair advantage. So we try and cancel that out by normalizing as a mathematical terminology. You, you normalize by the volume of cards in each uh, group. So if there's more uh, cards in the curated packs and you see less of them, you have to, you compensate for that and you, you uh, equalize the cards or normalize them based on just a, just a ratio that, that you can uh, share. So another thing that we can normalize on is rarity. So it's quite obvious that you see uncommons and rares less than you see commons. So if you wanna try and compare a common to an uncommon, you have to compensate for that, that difference somehow. And oftentimes in draft, you're trying to compare a common to an uncommon and see which one is better. Uh, Another thing that we compensate for is the color. So if a lot of people play a certain color, like fire in the last format, uh, or not very many people play a color like primal in, in 6.0, we compensate for that. And we look at the, we, we use 
ratios that help us be able to compare those, those two colors, even though there's more of uh, one color than the other. Uh, that, that puts both uh, of those situations, both of those colors on an even footing and just says, says what worked for that color or for that rarity or for that set six versus curated pack. And this is what allows us to compare two cards, like say in the last format where it was Corrupted Behemoth and Retribution were always sort of neck and neck as the top common in the last format. And this is on our normalized metric. So we're saying yeah. in time, in time decks, Corrupted Behemoth was as important for a time deck as Retribution was important for a Justice deck. Exactly. And because we had a lot more time decks than Justice decks in the last format, if we just looked at a raw count metric, for example, tor uh, um, Corrupted Behemoth would look like a much better card than Retribution because it wasn't taking into account the fact that there were just more time lists submitted than Justice lists. And while it's true that maybe the fact that there are more timeless submitted makes time a better color overall, that's not the question we're asking when we're saying comparing two cards together. When we're comparing two cards next to each other, we're asking in their respective decks, which is more important for those decks in their in getting seven wins. Exactly. And we can even do things like compare Argentport Soldier to uh, like Svetch's Faithful, when those cards, you'll never pick one of them over the other because they're in different packs. But you can say which one is, you can still say which one is more important to the justice strategy. Uh, and that evaluation can help you pick cards in both the set six and the curated packs uh, rather than make a simple decision in one. So I think a lot of the reasons people have problems with metrics uh, are because those metrics don't take these various factors into account. Um, and I think if we didn't take these factors into account, I would agree with those people that say that the metrics are bad. But because when you don't compensate for things like uh, how frequently you see the cards or how many decks you see of those colors, you get some very skewed results. Thankfully, we don't do that. Uh, we, we normalize quite a few things out of uh, the system and hopefully have this distilled down to something that you can use to try and draw a conclusion or start a conversation about why a card is good. Like our Argentport Soldier conversation in the past format, there just weren't any two drops in the format. So Argentport Soldier was really good and it was also a card in the curated packs that wasn't terrible. So it was good for that reason too. And that leads you to insights on the format, like there's not many two drops, there's not many good playable cards in the curated packs that can help you in general, not just with that specific card. So I think the implications of the metrics are quite far reaching, uh, quite a bit further than the particular valuation of any one card. Mm -hmm. uh, and because we do such a careful job in uh, calculating our metrics, uh, you can rely a little more on what they're saying. Now, and I'll just talk about a few of the things here that 
uh, are kind of known issues with the metrics. And you'll then you will know how to uh, compensate for them when you look at the numbers. So the, the first thing just in general is that multicolor cards have more variance. Uh, and the reason for that is because the sample size is so small. If you look at a Huru card, the Huru card can only be played in the Huru decks, whereas a Justice card like Retribution can be played in Huru, uh, Argentport, Wakano, uh, and uh, Combray. And that's quite a few more lists that it can be played in. So sample size is larger, the value is closer to what the average should actually be. So multicolor cards, there's, there's more variance in the multicolor cards than, than not. So the numbers are, will be less close to their true value. Uh, also, some cards don't really fit into a category, uh, a color category. Like, uh, for example, Argentport Stranger. Is that a justice card, a neutral card, a shadow card, or an Argentport card? Uh, it's not super easy to say that for the card Argentport Stranger because you might play it without having any use for the justice half or the shadow half. You might even play it without a use for either half. I played even-handed Gollum in set six just because I needed a two-drop. And Argentport uh, Stranger is going to be a lot better than even-handed Gollum in, in most cases. So it's a little hard to say which decks Argentport Stranger uh, should be going into. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the tokens are also uh, something that I have no really good solution for. Like the Ixton token, what decks would you play that in? Well, I played it in decks that were four-color decks missing one of the colors. So it, it's a little hard to say, you know, what color a, a token should be. The tokens are the three-color depleted choose one fixers from set five yeah. they, they don't really they don't really map very well to a color but well like clearly you need to be playing at least two of the colors right patrick but you don't have to necessarily be playing all three for that to be a good card in your deck yeah i think like this this little this category i think the importance of talking about the this category of cards is just to let people know to not read too much into the metric for like the strangers and the tokens. Yeah. But that's such a narrow slice of cards that I think like once you know that, you just don't overvalue. Like we said, you know, all 10 of the strangers are in the top 25 of the top commons. You know, I think to me that has a is not a super meaningful statement. I mean, I think it does show you that the strangers are very important and people are dropping them, but you but like you said, there are weird things about the strangers and the tokens that make them a little bit harder for us to glean sort of a super accurate number as compared to like the corrupted behemoths and the retributions and cards sure. like that, where I think yeah. we're much better able to pinpoint a number on how good they are in our, in our, the, our set of d data. I completely agree. Uh, I, there, if everything was like this, we wouldn't be using the metrics. But it is important to show where the metrics can have some holes so that you 
can correctly utilize them to evaluate things. I made the decision uh, in set 6.5 to count Argentport Stranger as an Argentport card because that's where you're most excited to play it. And most lists that play Argentport Stranger can use both fixings from it, probably 80% of lists. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I made that decision, and that's something that affected the evaluation of Argentport Stranger. I didn't treat it as a neutral card, um, or it would have rated much lower. So that's a, that's a design decision uh, that I made when setting up the metrics that could cause the metric values to be different than they would be for someone else. So there's two other things that we'll talk about. One is synergy. So a synergy card is only really good when you have and support the synergy. Uh, so for example, Blood Nurse, which we talked about earlier, is not very good unless you combine that with some kind of toughness enhancing effect, like Horn of Plenty, for example. Um, if you have that combination, uh, then the value of the card goes up quite a bit and it would probably perform better. But if you consider just straight up Blood Nurse as a shadow card, maybe only if one of the shadow color combinations even wants to play it. Maybe you have to be Xenon to play uh, Blood Nurse. I'm, this is a theory, not something that's proven or anything like that. But if that were the case, then Blood Nurse would score very poorly when compared to other shadow cards, because in the average shadow card will be played, playable in more shadow decks. So since we normalize by color, but not like implied synergy relationships, um, synergy cards will be uh, disadvantaged mm -hmm. and potentially strongly disadvantaged. So if, if you look at synergy cards, you have to... Uh, if a synergy card rates low, what that tells you is the synergy card is not good unless you have the synergy. That's what it that's what it tells you for sure. And then whether it's good with the synergy or not, uh, the metric doesn't really tell you that as it currently exists. We have plans in the future to do like uh, some more advanced stuff here, and maybe we'll be able to say that in the future, but we can't say it right now. Yeah, and another thing that uh, people need to be aware of is like as you get more nuanced, like you were saying, like maybe Blood Nurse is better in a Xenon um, deck, but sort of like in your first ex in our first point of what the metrics can get wrong, there's a lot more variance when we start talking about two color or three color decks, just because our sample size, yeah, for and, like Xenon decks is not that high. So like maybe Blood Nurse did overrepresent in your 20 zine index but that's that there's a lot more chance for noise than saying oh the blood nurse didn't represent in the 100 shadow decks right and then when you start talking about zine index that have blood nurse in them that drives your sample size down and then zine index that have both uh, Horn of Plenty and Blood Nurse in them, then you're talking about a very small sample size and you'll see a lot of variance there. So that's definitely true. The, the more focused you're, uh, focused and specific your analysis is, the more you're going to have sample size problems. Okay, so to wrap up this segment, let's, let's just talk about what, what the metrics are good for. What, how are we best to use them? 
so what I use them, I use the metrics for several things. One, when we have high sample size, I use it to tell me whether a rare is good or not, because I haven't played with all the rares. And even when I draft the rare, maybe I don't get to play it like we talked about earlier. So I, I look at the metrics for high rarity things once we have high sample size to help my testing process along. Another thing I do with the metrics is to narrow down the options. Now, what I don't do is say, you know, what's the metric for the 12 cards in this pack? Okay, pick the one that has the highest number. I, I don't think that's a very good way to, to draft in general. Maybe it's okay with, with the four-color mid-range strategy, but it's, it's not good in general. You want to use the metric to narrow down your options to like maybe two to four choices, and then you make a choice out of the remaining options and based on what your deck needs, what fits, uh, what you're looking for, what you're looking to do a little more, maybe intangibles like uh, ease of casting. Like if you have good fixing, then you can take cards that are harder to cast, that sort of thing that the metric won't, it, it won't tell you that, that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll often use it to narrow me, myself down to like two or three options, and then I make a choice between those options. And I think that's, that's pretty good. Uh, and the other thing I do is if there's a huge difference in the, in the metric value, then that will strongly uh, incentivize me to make a decision one way or the other. I, I don't care about small differences at all, basically. And a small difference is something like between 0.2 and 0.5 on this background rate metric that is basically noise. So once the differences get larger than that, then you can start considering them for power level concerns. And that uh, also, the um, I think that changes as we get more lists too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the numbers are generally going to decrease as we get more lists because the things that used to be very extreme are kind of brought back in line a little bit by the, by the sample size volume. I hope that cleared up some things about the metrics, and we're happy to have more discussion on it. So if, if you would like to go into the Discord and you know chat us up about the metrics, we have a channel about it, and we'd be happy to sort of lay out more of our thoughts on the topic. Um, and maybe we'll talk about it again in the podcast. But the next thing we're planning on talking about today is the next phase in, um, in our series about quadrant theory. And this one is the winning phase. So Ben, what are your thoughts on the winning phase? Yeah, so the, the winning phase is defined as when you have a significant uh, board advantage. Uh, and in general, when you're in that sort of situation, basically anything you do is good. If you play another creature, that's good. You have a more significant board advantage. If you remove one of their creatures in any way, that's good. You have a more significant board advantage. If you draw two cards, that's good. You have more resources. You're still winning. Basically, no matter what you do, you're, you're, you're winning. So uh, this, this is a phase that is the one most people, uh, is the easiest one to think about because it's the scenario you want to be in the most. You know, I have uh, five creatures, my opponent has nothing, I attack them and I cast the card Rally, right? That Rally did 10 damage to my opponent for three power. 
that's really good when you're winning. They probably just died. Um, but even if you did not cast that card, you probably did a lot of damage to them. And no matter what they do, they're probably dead the next turn. Uh, and, and the further you are ahead, the less it matters that you have a card that's good in this sort of situation. Uh, just because you know, you're advantaged, you don't need to be more advantaged, typically. You, you don't need to dedicate spaces in your, in your deck to cards that are better when you're more advantaged. So I talked about Rally. That's, that's like a pretty classic card. Another card is something like Pack Hunt where you know you make all your guys bigger you attack and kill them right you kill them a whole lot or like hall of the lost kings hall of the lost kings is a pretty classic one it's a seven cost time spell gives you a five five sentinel and if you have more than 25 life so more than your starting life total uh, you get uh five five fives or something like that which is just crazy you get 25 power for 25 attack and health for seven power uh, and, you know, you were ahead in life, you were doing good, and now you're really doing good because you have all of these creatures. Uh, some other cards that are good, so th those cards that we talked about are kind of only good when you're winning. They're not very good in any other situation. So I, I think it's generally uh, understood that those kind of cards are more like win more cards or uh, not very good in general. There are some cards that are good in this phase that are just generally good cards. Like I was talking about before, basically any kind of removal, Eviscerate, Streets of Flame, uh, Frost Wave. These are cards that if your opponent is just barely getting back in the game, you say, nope, you're not getting back in the game. You're going to die instead, and you win. That's fine. But those cards are good in other phases as well. Uh, other cards are like Bottoms Up, uh, blink, um, cards like that, where if you have an advantage, you can convert it into a win now. And in general, that's, that's pretty good. And if those cards have use in other phases, that's where I'm more on board with playing them. Uh, it, it's, it's hard to justify playing cards that are only good when you're ahead. Can, can you think of a card that's only good when you're ahead, Patrick? No, but fast, I, don't, I don't actually think that's important. I'm, I think I'm going to go on the uh, the offense here against you Fair. with uh, your summary of this phase right now, because I think you are giving it a little bit of short shrift by saying it's the least important phase. I think it is the least important phase in the sense that you don't want to play cards that are only good in this phase. I but I you. think yeah. it is a phase that you... I think it is important to think about because you you need to know about this phase because you need to know that you shouldn't evaluate cards just based on this phase. And so, so I think it's it's good because it gives you sort of a stark contrast to then compare cards to. And like that's part of the important I think of the importance of this theory of evaluating cards is because even though we're talking about one phase at a time over the course of four or five weeks, what you really want to do at the end of it is to put them all together. And so you're evaluating every card through the lens of these four phases. And you're not, you're, you really don't want to be emphasizing 
any one phase. You want to be able to look at a card sort of through a holistic lens. And I th so I think talking about the phase is important, even if it's just to point out that, yes, people have a bias. Think about cards and how good they are only when they're ahead. And also that cards that are only good when you're ahead aren't very useful because most, like you said, most cards are good when you're ahead. And I also think there is like, and you kind of went over a lot of these cards in, in what you last said there, I think there is also an importance to thinking about cards that help you close out games when you're ahead, because yeah, yeah. Um, like one of the things that can happen is when you're too far ahead, you end up playing too conservatively or you start playing a little loose. And so I think, Obviously, you don't want to do either of those, but also having cards in your deck that'll just win you the game are helpful as long as they're not only good for, for that. I think we're on the same page here. I think what I'm hearing, I'm hearing a similar opinion. Is it, do you, so if I told you that a card was good in this phase, how would that help you make a decision about whether the card was good or not? Would you say the card was good or not based on whether it was good or not in this phase? Or would you use the information from the other phases instead? Like, uh, let's look at, uh, for example, Permafrost, right? Permafrost is good when you're ahead. They play the Corrupted Behemoth you, and try and stabilize against your three or four creatures. You Permafrost it, attack them, and they're probably dead the next turn, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to lose a creature this turn. You don't have to lose a creature next turn. You're good. But Permafrost is good in developing, it's good when you're behind, it's good at parity, it's good in, in when you're racing, it's good in every situation. So that it's good in winning doesn't really help. Whereas like a card like Rally is good when you're winning, right? But it's not, not good in developing, it's not good when you're behind, it's not good at parity. Uh, so shouldn't the effect that the card has in the other phases have in general more importance than than the worth of the card specifically when you're ahead. I I mean yes and no. I I mean I agree that I think we're on the same page. I guess I was kind of joking when I said I was going on the offense. When all, <laughs> all I really wanted to say was that just because it's the least important quadrant doesn't mean you shouldn't be thinking about it. I I suppose I think it I think it is the quadrant. If we agree that it's the least important quadrant, I think it's also the quadrant or the phase that people think about the most. And I think that the, the thought about this phase causes people to make, to misevaluate cards more than it causes them to evaluate the cards correctly. Right. Uh, so I, I think the existence of the phase is almost a detriment to the system because you really don't need to consider whether the card, whether any card is good in this phase, because all cards are. Right, but I, that's my point. This is like about implicit bias. Do you know what I mean? It's like you, you can't not think about it because everyone will be eventually in a, a phase of the game where they're winning because everyone well, wins yes, a few yeah. games. So yeah. <laughs> you're always going to, without thinking about it, evaluate cards in <laughs> your favorite, favorite phase of the game. And so I think that's why it's important to think. That's why I think it's so important to think about this quadrant so that you can realize that you shouldn't be thinking about this quadrant.
But you can't do that unless you realize that you're thinking too much about this quadrant. Sure, I agree. That that, that lines up with my perspective there. So yeah, uh, yeah. It just you sh you shouldn't use the worth of cards in this phase to do draw conclusions about the worth of the card generally. I agree. Uh, there are cards. So to be a little more fair to this phase. I think a card like Roosting Warhawk does pretty well in this phase, and for good reason. So you attack, you know, you're a little ahead. You attack and play a Roosting Warhawk. It's a 4-3 flyer, right? That creature is likely to kill them very quickly unless they deal with specifically that creature. And specifically that creature is harder to deal with than with whatever little guys you happen to be minorly ahead with at the time. And even if you're not ahead, it's still a flying creature. It can still attack and do damage. Uh, I just feel like the, the worth of this card in the ahead scenario is uh, corrupting people's overall evaluation of the card to make them think it's uh, better than it is, better mm -hmm. than the stat line would, would indicate. It's also the scenario that you uh, most see best case scenario mentality. Like, I have three creatures on board. I, pay, I play Angry Prophet. It is a 4-2 uh, for two power. That's really good. I'm winning. I'm awesome. Right? It, it's easy to see the scenario where it works really well. And then it's also, like, least relevant and least important to do that. Uh, you have to be thinking about the, the other scenarios as well, or perhaps instead of. Uh, in order to uh, evaluate how good the card is going to be generally. It, like, we do see, I see a lot of lists, and I see a lot of aggressive lists, and the good aggressive lists I see, their top end are things that close the game. And they close the game no matter what the other person is doing. It'll be a combustion brawler. It'll be a, a flying creature. It'll be, uh, you know, a, a five-cost removal spell to remove a blocker. And that's very common. You don't see very many people playing like Pit Fighter as their top end or uh, something else that can give your opponent a tempo advantage if they remove it. All right. So I think that'll close up our um, the winning phase. Um, and we'll keep doing. We have uh, two more phases to go, I guess. Right, Ben? Sure, sure. I think. In our I think and then we'll probably have some kind of recap, like you were saying. That's a good idea. <laughs> Man, I hate that name. Okay. So. All right. All right. So that's uh, that's it for quadrant theory. So normally we go over a draft at the end of the episode, and I might have mentioned it at the beginning of this episode that we we're going to do a draft. But uh, this one ran a little long, and it's getting a little late here. Um, so I think we're going to skip the draft as far as the podcast portion of this episode goes. But for those of you who would like to see the draft and Ben's thoughts, I think we're going to move it over to the Discord. We'll have the screenshots, we'll have the pics, and so we can kind of discuss it live on the Discord for those of you who would like to review the draft. We'll also probably, we'll have it available in the show notes, I think, also, with the link to it on the website. Yeah, so that's that'll be it for our show here today. So, as always, thank you to our patrons. Uh, we really appreciate all the support. Um, and then a reminder to give us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. 
You can join us in the Discord to see the draft that we were going to discuss or just talk about draft in general. Like we've been saying, we have a lot of people in the Discord always ready to talk about draft. And then finally, thumbs up all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts. Um, she's been posting them uh, to Reddit for us, and we really appreciate that. So thank you, Raven Dragon. And don't forget to send in all of your deck lists uh, to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Bye. Have a great night, everyone. Cool. I hope everyone can rake in some platinum chests. <laughs>